why don't we pause and let's just pray that God would help us to do that. Let's ask for his help um, before we turn to his word this morning. God, thank you for the victory of Jesus Christ, and thank you for the gifts that you have put into our hands uh, so that we can serve and minister to others. And so, God, we, we just ask for your help. We know that we could all be very selfish and stingy and self-focused and think that somehow these amazing gifts that you have placed into our hands are for us. And so, God, we, we pray that you would um, help change our thinking. We ask for your grace and just the, the whole way that we think and view this matter of gifts. And God, we ask for your grace or your help in, in giving us the strength then to exercise them, to use them. And God, we pray that as we do so, that you would build up um, our body, our church family here at Beaumont Baptist for your glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we have a kids class available at this time and a nursery every week as well. Uh, the nursery's right over here. Well, basically, everything's just kind of in the back. There's signs on the doors there, and so kids, you're more than welcome to head to uh, your class. And if you're new with us and you've got kids and um, are interested in them being in one of the classes here today, there's just a table at the back. You can go and get your kids checked in for that. Uh, why don't you join me in the Gospel of Mark again, chapter 10. Mark 10, verses 32 to 45. Um, when you think about greatness, I wonder what comes to your mind. Maybe an image or a picture of some kind. Maybe you think of a person, Alexander the Great. Or maybe you think of a nation's massive, powerful army. Or you think of some monarch, um, a palace or a throne. Maybe you think of the corner office with all the windows and the big plush chair, this place of power and authority. Or maybe you think of the CEO of a multi-million dollar company like Apple or Amazon, and you think, wow, those are some great people. The exceptionally skilled, accomplished, and determined, the rich and the famous, I mean, this is how we tend to think of greatness. Or what about at the more everyday comparative level where you and I live? Maybe it's the person with the bigger income or bigger house, the person with the bigger position in life. The person with bigger, better talents and skills. Uh, the person with more success or impact. It's like, well, they've done something. The person with better looks, personality or charisma. Uh, the, the person with more people under his or her leadership. These are the ways that we tend to define greatness and significance. And I think that all of us, if we're honest, want to be great in some way, even if it's just in our own little private world. Mark 10, 32 to 45 addresses our insatiable hunger for greatness. And it actually comes to us in a discussion about thrones, um, which I think is just such a helpful picture because we all want a throne, a bigger, taller, higher, softer throne. All of us want to be great, significant, but do you know what Jesus wants for you? Well, interestingly... Jesus wants you to follow in his path to greatness. Jesus, too, wants you to be great. But his idea of greatness and yours might not be aligned. In fact, they might be contradictory. Why don't we read all the way through this text as we begin. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, and we'll read all the way down through verse 45. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed 
And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they, became, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to work through three considerations about greatness this morning. Here's our first consideration. You need to radically recalibrate your definition of greatness. In fact, your entire framework needs to change. True greatness is entirely illogical and counterintuitive. If you want to understand it, then look at Jesus. Jesus is the definition of greatness. And in him, we see resolve plus sacrifice coming together. Put another way, what we see in Jesus is a life that is committed to sacrificially serving the best interests of others. An entire life committed to that. So, Your definition of greatness should include resolve. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. What we see here is Jesus is resolved. He's out in front of his followers like any great leader. That's where a leader belongs, right? And here he is. He's a man on a mission. He's a man with a destiny, and he's resolute. He is going to Jerusalem. He's not going to be stopped. And those following behind him, we read about them that they were, on the one hand, some of them were amazed, and others of them were afraid. Because they believe Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to liberate God's people from Roman rule and oppression and take his throne. It's go time. And what these people are realizing is that two separate kingdoms are about to collide head on. 
Jesus has set himself on a collision course, and he's headed that way with resolve. He is going to Jerusalem. Your definition of greatness should include resolve, but it's not just that. Your definition of greatness should include sacrifice. Look at verses 32 to 34. Actually, we'll pick up kind of at the end there of verse 32. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen to him, saying, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, Jesus is referring to himself, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus knows and he foretells what's going to happen in Jerusalem. When his kingdom and the kingdom of men and the kingdom of darkness collide, he will die in shame. Well, that's not the language of a conqueror. Jesus is resolved to sacrifice his life. He is resolved to give up everything he has. And Jesus tells his disciples, I mean, his message to them, his consistent message has been, follow me. Follow me to my throne. In other words, follow me to my death. What? That's crazy. Your definition of greatness should include these these two ideas, resolve and sacrifice put together. Jesus shows that greatness is a life committed to sacrificially serving the best interests of others. You need to radically recalibrate your definition of greatness. We're not talking here about a, a 5 or 10 or 15 or even like 30 degree adjustment. But a 180 degree recalibration. This is not, oh, okay, I get it. I'm going to start doing the odd act of service here and there and try to be more of a servant. No, no, this is, I am resolved like Jesus to live my entire life this way. That's no minor recalibration. Uh, Yesterday, I was driving with a friend of mine who had just purchased a used truck. And as we were driving, he looked down at his compass there on the dashboard. And he he said to me, "I, I think I need to figure out how to recalibrate this thing. Because we were clearly driving east. And the compass was giving a reading that was entirely opposite of that. Major recalibration was needed. And you might need the same in your mind and in your heart. You need, I think it would be fair to say that we all need to recalibrate our definition of greatness. Jesus, yes, he wants you to be great by following in his steps. And that is going to require a radical change in your thinking. You will never be great without radical surgery on on your head and your heart. Like just a massive shift needs to take place in all of our thinking and what's going on in here. In order to define greatness the right way, you have to throw out your old definition. Throw it out. Throw it in the garbage. Pour gasoline on it and then light it on fire. It needs to go up in flames. Which brings us to our second consideration about greatness. You might think that you are great when you're not. If you're great by the wrong definition, then you are not great at all. 
And here's the crux of it. Either Jesus will be your definition of greatness like we just talked about, or you will define greatness as yourself. I am great. When you make yourself the definition of greatness, it it, it kind of looks and sounds like this. Uh, Okay, obviously, well, you think you're great, right? I mean, you define greatness as me and what I want. You love yourself, and so uh, given the great love that you have for yourself, you're going to work very, very hard to look after and always ensure what's best for you. I mean, this is like the default setting for all of humanity. And you're going to try to pursue that, and you're going to believe, oh, I deserve it. I'm worthy of the very best for me. And when anyone or anything stands in the way or or threatens your best life right here and right now, it's war. It's relational conflict. Things set in like resentment and interpersonal conflict and, and words and actions, that sort of thing. When you make yourself the definition of greatness, it gets really ugly really fast. Just look at James and John. When you define greatness as yourself, uh, we'll we'll see a couple clips of what that looks like. I think God has given us three clips of that, kind of audio-visual clips in this text. Clip number one, you'll say this, you'll ask this, what is best for me? And it's this whole idea of self-seeking promotion. I am going to go out and get what's best for me. That's the big question. What do I need? Look at verses 35 and 37, or down through verse 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. Last week, we looked at the account of the rich young ruler. In Matthew's account of that same story, Jesus told the twelve this. This is Matthew 19, verse 28. When the Son of Man, when Jesus sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, next thing you know. James and John come up to Jesus, actually with mommy in tow, according to Matthew. And they come with their mother to secure the two best thrones for themselves. And what they want is position and prominence. They want the best. And their language here in this text is so self-focused. I mean, just, just listen to some of these key words from their question. They say to Jesus, we want. Do for us. Whatever we ask. Grant us. What is best for me? That's what I want. That's what I'm going to go grab. Is that how you're living? I mean, you could look at any slice of your life. Is that how you're living in your home? Is that how you're relating to your spouse and your marriage? Is that how you're functioning on your job? Is that how you're operating in your pain and in your suffering? I'm hurting, so now it's about me. Are you living like everyone exists for you? Are you constantly, selfishly, greedily seeking what's in your best interest? This whole idea of self-seeking promotion. 
Do you live as if you're entitled to certain things? Do you expect and demand special treatment? Are you trying to reach up and grasp something selfishly for yourself? Are you selfishly pursuing life on a throne because it's all about what's best for you? That's what happens when we define greatness the wrong way. Uh, So first clip, what's best for me? Second clip, you'll say this. Actually, not just that. I deserve what's best. And, and this is just this idea of an, of an inflated and overinflated view of self and of one's own importance. Look at verses 38 to 40. They make this request and Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. In other words, you don't understand how this whole throne thing works. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, Yep. We're able. We belong on one of those thrones. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. These two sure do think a lot of themselves. We are able, they say. They see themselves as more than capable and worthy of sitting on the two best thrones. They see themselves as deserving of those. And in verse 38, Jesus responds to their initial request for the best two thrones by saying, you don't know what you're asking. You you don't understand how this whole thing works. And then he goes on to to demonstrate and show them that God the Father has actually reserved those two prominent and prestigious thrones, not for those who go out looking for them, but for those who have sacrificed, suffered, and served the greatest. And everything that Jesus is saying in these verses is going to show that the way up is actually the way down. That's the trajectory of the great. And Jesus demonstrates this by way of personal example. He will sit on his glorious throne. The highest throne is his. And he will sit on that glorious throne having drank the cup and having been immersed in immense suffering. The cup is a metaphor for drinking God's judgment, drinking God's wrath and fury for sin. And baptism is here used as a metaphor for being uh, completely immersed, completely overwhelmed by something crushing. It seems to be the picture of drowning or being crushed by the weight of water. Uh, Just a few months back, news broke. I'd imagine many of you tuned into this news story about the Titan sub. Uh, which basically had attempted to descend to the bottom of the ocean floor and explore the wreckage of the Titanic. Well, the sub just vanished, vaporized. And crews searched for it for days. They, they looked and they looked and they looked. Where did it go? Uh, they never found it. All they found was debris and possibly human remain, remains. And what happened is as the Titan sub had uh, began its descent down to where the Titanic wreckage was and it got deeper and deeper and deeper and there was more water weight coming down on it and from every side. 
Eventually, the water weight crushed it, and it imploded, killing all five passengers just... And Jesus is using water imagery like that to describe his suffering. Great, great, immense weight that he is being baptized in, immersed in, drowning in, being crushed in. With that in mind, look, look at this whole conversation again, verses 38 to 40. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Are you able to suffer like that? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus, the whole way he frames his question is that, no, no, his, his thing, what he's going to do, it's unique. But we're able, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. Okay, but this whole throne thing, that's, that's the Father's business based on something else. James and John had not sacrificially suffered. They weren't able to sit on those thrones, at least in the, their current position. Jesus explains to them, you will indeed suffer in your own right. The degree and effect, it's going to be different, but you will suffer. But their whole framework, we're able, we already deserve those thrones. We're capable. I deserve what's best. I'm worthy of it. That's the idea. And so I want to ask you, do you have that same mentality? Are you living with that same mentality? Not only am I going to go pursue the best for me because life is about me, but I am worthy of the best. I deserve the best. Is that your mentality? That that's what you deserve, the very best all the time, and everybody else is there to give it to you? Do you have an inflated view of yourself? I deserve everyone in my home to serve me and give me what I want. I deserve to be recognized. You know what I deserve is I deserve a break. I deserve to sit down and put my feet up and relax. I deserve to watch others do the hard work while I sit here. Here's a question for you. Are you entitled? James and John seem to be. Oh yeah, like that's, that should be ours. Of course that's for us. And I think so many times in our life and our relationships and all the different things going on in our lives, we just sit there like, oh, come on. You should be providing for me what's obviously rightfully mine and I deserve. And when you define greatness as yourself instead of Jesus, it will be what is best for me. And not only that, but I deserve it. But it gets worse. Where does all of this lead? Uh, we're given a third clip here. You'll say this as well, at least in your heart. I'm going to fight for what's best for me. Now we, we've got this idea of cutthroat competition. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They're not mad because James and John are spiritually immature but because they beat them to it and tried to get the upper hand. They're just like James and John. When you define greatness as yourself, it inevitably puts you in conflict and at odds with other people. It is a recipe for interpersonal conflict. It is a recipe for turf wars. 
And, and now it becomes this sort of idea. You are my enemy and opponent. The 12 are at odds. You're the one standing in the way of what I want. You're going to get run over if you don't move out of my way. You took what I wanted. How dare you? You're going to get hurt if you don't give it to me. I'm going to fight for what's best for me. Again, do you see yourself doing that? I want what's best for me. I deserve what's best for me. Get out of my way. Give it to me or pay the price. And there are all kinds of ways that we can begin to exact payments from other people when they don't give us what we want. You'll pay a price with my words. You'll pay a price with my actions. You'll pay a price with my silence. You'll pay a price with my moods. But if you don't recognize that life is about me and I deserve it and give it to me, there will be a price to pay. Follow-up question on that for you. Where do you see conflict in your life? I mean, I'm guessing every single one of us, <laughs> if we're honest, has some conflict in our life. Um, it doesn't take me too long to think about where I see it showing up in mine. I just don't plan to tell you about it right now. But we all have it, right? Where we're at odds. Maybe with our spouse, with our children, with our parents, somewhere on the job, somewhere in a friendship, somewhere with other people at church. This is something that we know. We're very familiar with conflict because every single one of us has it. Where do you see conflict in your life? Is it possible that, that whatever conflict you're thinking of, you may be thinking of one relationship or multiple scenarios, is it possible that that conflict exists because you think that you are great? And I would argue that there's a good chance that's precisely why that conflict exists. Or maybe on, on the flip side of that, you, you really are sitting there as a victim of somebody else thinking that they're really great. You might think you're great when you're not. And if you look anything like the 12 here, if, if what we've just seen is you see in your life, that, that's a sign not of your greatness, but a sign of, to your shame. So maybe it's worth pausing and thinking through some of the mindsets and excuses that you and I could have to behave like the disciples here. We can have mindsets that, that are like this. Uh, you could be thinking, hey, you know what? I'm really accomplished. I've worked really hard. I've risen above the rest. You've worked harder than others. You've worked very hard, and so you deserve special treatment. Or maybe it's this mindset. Your pain and your suffering is greater than others. You're, hurt, you're hurting, and it's difficult, and it's complicated. And so that all of a sudden becomes the reason that life can be about you. Or you're just a young person, you know, in your house. Mom and dad are there for you. It's their job to serve you. Or you've done your time serving here, there, this realm, that realm. And, you know, you deserve to sit down, kick your feet up, and uh, let other people do that. Or you carry a lot of weights, responsibilities, and pressures. 
you might feel like you deserve a throne and that everybody else should serve you. But if you think that way, you're wrong. Jesus wants you to follow in his path to greatness. And that brings us to our third and final consideration about greatness this morning. You should strive to be great in the kingdom of God. By God's standards. Jesus wants you to follow his path to greatness. And as we've already been seeing, it's actually a downward path. Jesus puts it this way. You must stand in stark contrast to the world. Whatever the world thinks greatness is, your life should look a whole lot different. Look at verses 42 and 43. And Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers, those who are thought to be great, the rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus calls all of us to put something away. Jesus calls you to put away selfish reigning. Ruling and reigning throughout life in selfishness. That's the name of the game in the kingdom of men. The more important you are, the greater you are, the more people you can dominate, the more people you can force to serve you, fulfill your wishes, and so on. Really, to be great in the kingdom of men means to be the person saying, hey, you're going to do it my way. For me, because it's about me. And Jesus calls you to put that away. Put away selfish reigning. Climb down off that throne. Put away selfish reigning and put on the garb of a slave. Look at verses 43 and 44. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Humble, lowly service and sacrifice. When you take the posture and position of a slave, like Christ is calling us to here, you take your rights and you set them aside. You take your glory, or at least your personal perception of that, and you set it aside. You take what could have been yours and you set it aside. How do we know that? Because that's, what, that's exactly what Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus did. And that's exactly how this account ends. According to Jesus, if you want to be great, you must stand in stark contrast to the world and you must walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Look at verse 45. Here's the rationale for all of this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus sets himself here as the quintessential example of greatness. And his example is not, everyone is my servant. Everyone out there is for me. But rather, I am the servant of all. His example is not, hey, the best is mine and I deserve it and so I'm going to go grab it and if you get in my way, you're going to be punished. But rather, I give up the best. I sacrifice the best so that what is best might come to others. 
Let's work through each phrase of verse 45, noting what Christ has shown us about greatness, service, and sacrifice. The first phrase, for even the Son of Man, even Him. If anybody has a right not to serve, but to be served, it's Jesus. He's God. He created everything for His own pleasure and glory. Even the Son of Man, then we read, came. Where did He come from? Heaven. Splendor, glory, majesty, perfection. And he, came, he, he sacrificially left that to come here. Not to be served. Jesus did not come here to earth to gain something for himself. He didn't come to get, but to give. But to serve, we read. And Jesus' entire earthly life was a life of service. And that's most notably seen in the next phrase of the verse, which says, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Jesus came to give his life on the cross, and the verse says that he did that to give his life as a ransom. What's a ransom? Well, it's a price paid to secure release. Jesus died on the cross as an act of sacrificial service that paid the price for your sin to God the Father so that you could be set free. So that you could be released from all kinds of terrible things. Eternal judgment and condemnation and hell, the wrath of God hanging over you, your sin binding you. Jesus died as a ransom for you. The verse says that Jesus did this for many. Jesus died for or in the place of as a substitute for many. He bled, suffered, and died in your place. One life for, <laughs> for all. And as verse 34 prophesied, he rose again the third day. Jesus is the great king of the kingdom. That center throne, the highest one, it's rightfully his. And his greatness is seen in his suffering, his sacrificial service for us. That is greatness. And Jesus now calls you, walk in my footsteps. Put on the garb of a slave and do that as a way of life. Not an act here or there. The entirety of your life. Jesus, again, he's not calling you to the odd act of service and sacrifice here and there. He is calling you to make humble service and sacrifice a defining way of life. To be a slave is to have your life defined by service and sacrifice for other people. Uh, there's a Spanish philosopher who told about uh, a Roman aqueduct uh, in Spain where he lived. And that was actually built way back in 109 A.D., um, 18 or uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And for 1,800 years, uh, that, that aqueduct served the city by providing uh, water that would come from the mountain down to the people, down to the city. And after 1,800 years of serving the community like that, another generation decided, hey, this thing's amazing. 1,800 years of this. And it was such a great marvel that they thought, we really need to preserve this. And so what they decided to do was they were going to take it out of service. They built a whole new modern system, and now they were going to have this, this monument from this uh, aqueduct. And so that's precisely what they did. They set up a whole new system, and they gave that uh, ancient system a break. They let it rest 
as a monument. And interestingly enough, what happened is the sun, you know, the water stops flowing and the sun just starts beating down on it. And eventually it began to crumble and the bricks and stones started to fall apart. And what hundreds and hundreds of years of serving didn't destroy just a short time of idleness totally tore apart. And I like that story for a couple of reasons as we look at this text. One being this, it gives us a beautiful picture of service and sacrifice as a way of life. 1,800 years of, of, of moving water, just constantly serving the city. For hundreds of years, the aqueduct served the city nonstop. That's the kind of idea here. It, it's unending. It is a way of life. And second, I think it's a great reminder that when people's lives aren't characterized by service, there is, actually, there is absolutely no way for that person to be spiritually healthy. You should strive to be great in the kingdom of God, and Jesus wants you to follow his path to greatness, not your own. And thinking this whole passage through, I think there are a few things we should focus on here at the end. One would be that Jesus has done something radical to serve you. Not small, not insignificant, not minor. But he has done something spectacular. Not for his good, but for yours. What did he do? He gave his life on the cross. He came from heaven here to live and die. To take your sin and set you free. To make you right with God. And so one of the first applications, I think, of this whole text is, okay, if God's done something for me, uh, he's served me. Jesus served me. Have I received what he's, he's put down, so to speak? He's offered you eternal life through his service. Have you received it? He wants you to. And if you go, I don't, even, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I've taken the gift that God's given me, his gift of service to me. He wants you to, <laughs> to acknowledge, I am a sinner. I need that gift. I need his service. God, would you forgive me? I, b I believe that Jesus, what he did, can save me and set me free, as verse 45 talks about, and give me new life. And if you've never received God's gift of his service of dying on the cross for you, you can do that today and say, God, make me new. Set me free from my sin. Give me a new life based on your work. Also, I think as we look at this text, we want to be really careful that this is just not be good like Jesus. Part of this, it, it really ought to cause us to pause and just to marvel at what Christ has done for us. And, and then to worship him and response. This is radical. This is not ordinary. What Jesus did for you is monumental. No sacrifice like it. No suffering that will ever match it. And we have to pause and we have to go, thank you, Jesus, for your immense sacrifice and service and suffering for me. And that really becomes the foundation from, from which we all grow to look more like Jesus. This is all based on him. We need to remember that you and I cannot be great in our own strength foundational to living this way is pondering what Christ has done for you and meditating on it. Oh, okay. Christ has done this for me. And that becomes powerful motivation and grace and help to turn around and live the same way. Something else here I think that's really helpful is that you and I can all take heart from the disciples' example. 
the middle section of our text is, it's not just ugly, it's, it's extremely ugly. James and John. I mean, they're like right there in the inner circle with Jesus. Peter, James, and John. And man, these guys are selfish and self-consumed. But Jesus doesn't leave them where they're at. No, no, no. He, he keeps saying to them, follow me. He keeps uh, working with them, helping them, growing them. These, these type of men and, and the ugliness of their sin, these are the type of men that Jesus started the church with. And there's something there that I think is very, very encouraging for all of us as we look at this text because we look at James and John and it's not too hard to see ourselves. We go, wow, I, I, am, I, am, <laughs> I am a disaster. A selfish disaster. And yet God began little bit by little bit and, in, and then even in radical ways through his death and resurrection to change these men. And if we will ponder and consider Christ's sacrifice for us, his death, his sacrifice, his resurrection, God will powerfully change us. If you follow Jesus and submit to him, he will change you. He won't leave you where you're at. And very practically, with God's help, strive to be great this coming week by God's standards. In your home, hey, what God has placed me here with maybe one other person or a, a household of people, other family members. What does it look like to be great in this setting? What does it look like to lovingly, sacrificially serve and bring what's good to other people? How can I do that? Jumping in and helping with whatever task, the, the words that you choose, how you speak. Uh, thinking about your workplace. Um, how can you pull your weight? As you have coworkers, that some of which are awesome and some of which are less than awesome and unpleasant and annoying. How can I serve these people? You know, can I slow down for my day to help this person understand something? Or when this pure person treats me poorly, can I serve them by responding with kindness? Or when, when this customer or this patient uh, has a need, can I meet it and do so with kindness? And your friendships and really any of your relationships, the idea of, of pausing to ask questions and slow down and listen what is going on in this person's life I'm not just here to tell this person about everything in my life and me tell me about you tell me what's going on in your life what's on your mind what's on your heart how did this go how did that go how can I help how can I serve you I care in your marriage helping your spouse however you can again listening what's going on in your world Shouldering burdens, taking something off your spouse's plate. I mean, just all kinds of things. Uh, sexually, in the marriage relationship, this, this whole space is not for me. It's for me to love and serve and God be glorified. And your family, again, in your home, you've got mom and dad and kids and siblings. And how are you going to relate to all of those people, your neighbors? In your church, again, asking questions and listening and looking for ways to serve. Jesus wants you to share in his greatness. But Jesus is very clear. Here's the catch. To share in his greatness, you must share in his suffering and service. 
Jesus reminds all of us that it is not about you. I want to leave you here just with one final quote. I think it it comes from uh, the passage where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, or maybe that's where this quote was originally kind of the idea came from, but I think it's so helpful. I find it challenging to me. He who dies with the dirtiest towel wins. That's Jesus' example. And by his grace, we can live that same way. Will you bow your head with me as we wrap up here this morning? As you sit there in your seat, I just want to encourage you to pray to the Lord, respond to him however he um, may have worked in your heart. Maybe you want to cry out and say, Jesus, I, I want your work on my behalf. What you did for me, I want, I want to make that personal. Will you be my savior? Will you set me free from my sin and make me new? Maybe you want to ask God to forgive you of your selfishness and self-serving life, your reign of selfishness. Maybe you want to cry out, God, I need help. I need grace. I'm struggling. You pray however God's leading you, and I'll pray here momentarily for us all. Father, we don't have to look very deep within ourselves and at our everyday actions, our words, and all the rest (laughs) to see just how much we look like our great-grandfather, Adam. We are those who are ever reaching up to grab in our selfishness and our pride what we think is best for us and will make what will make our world go round. We are selfish. We are sinful. We think we're much more important than we actually are. And we very quickly defile the relationships that you have placed us in because of that. And so, Father, we come here this morning confessing our sin of selfish pride, of reigning in our selfishness on our little self-centered thrones. God, would you forgive us? Would you you cleanse us and forgive us of, of that nasty, disgusting sin that is almost everywhere in our lives? And God, we would also ask that knowing that it's there and it's so prevalent that you would help us to to see it for what it is and, and see it faster, see it quicker. That you would give us the grace to repent of it. And God, we, we ask as well that you would help us fill our minds with the gospel, that we would 
that we would constantly be following behind you, looking at your example to us of selfless sacrifice and giving yourself on the cross, not to be served, but to serve. And to see how you've done that for us, and God, may that help us as we would then seek to turn around and love and serve others, whether they're kind to us, whether they love us or not. God, would you help us grow? God, we pray that we would be great, not by our own ridiculous definition, but by yours. God, please help us not to be trying to ascend to our great thrones, but humbling ourselves and following you to to the place of death, dying to ourselves to serve others. And God, again, we praise you, we worship you, that that is exactly what you have done for us in sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you for your gift of eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.